This is Radio Orbit, exploring the secrets of everything on KOPN Columbia.
to you out there. This is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. And all right, uh, thanks, big thanks to Debbie Johnson, as always, a great program. I don't even know the name of that particular one. I, I missed the actual name of it, but I love that she's back to her, her old self. Uh, after the holiday season here, not even officially over, really. The body's still warm, I guess. No pun intended. Oh, my gosh. I'm already in trouble, Deb. So, anyway, great stuff from Debbie Johnson, as always, on Free Range Radio Theater. And that comes to you every Monday night at 10 o'clock, an hour before this program. And, uh, yeah, we've got three more hours of this, believe it or not. And it's 11.05 tonight. My guest is um, coming to you from a recorded interview that I did, actually, on uh, November 19th, uh, just a few weeks ago, Joseph Chilton Pierce, and uh, he's an amazing guy and someone who I've learned a lot from over the years, so I'll be airing an interview that I did with Joe uh, just a few weeks ago, and that'll come up at around the top of the hour. It's not uh, a typical two-hour interview like we sort of do live, so we've got some time for some things in between. And uh, we'll just have to see how things go. We've got plenty of things to talk about in the news. And it's the end of the year, and we have sort of the uh, nostalgic, retrospective look at 2005 that we're going to do actually next week with Kent Stedman. But uh, certainly uh, no reason why we can't do a little of that tonight as well. So, okay, so anyway, it's Mike, and it's Radio Orbit, and it's uh, Christmas time and the holiday season. And so I hope you and yours are doing okay and happy and having a good time of it. All right, tonight the music will be provided by Robert Carty, and uh, he's an amazing musician. I'm not going to say more about him, but it's sort of a ambient uh, techno feel that we'll do tonight, and he's going to be uh, featured throughout the program. So we'll have six or seven songs from Robert Carty uh, throughout the entire program tonight including throughout that uh, interview with Joseph Chilton Pierce. So you've got that to look forward to. On the website, of course, at www.mikehagan.com, you can get on there and go uh, get information on all this stuff. You can jump over to Joseph Chilton Pierce's website, or at least his section of the website, touchthefuture.org, an amazing group of people that are working uh, for Touch the Future. So anyway... Uh, Joe Pierce is over there. You can get there directly from my website. Just go to MikeHagan.com, and then you'll see Joe's um, uh, his information on the front page there, and you can just click to get over to his web page, okay? Same thing for Robert Cardi. If you're interested in the music, just go to the website and then click on the Music tab, and you can go learn stuff about Robert there and download at least one of his songs, Okay. All right, and if I sound like I have a cold, I totally do, and it's been like the third week, and it's driving me crazy, and, you know, I've heard it all, I'm tr- I've tried it all, trust me, I've heard it all, I've, I've tried colloidal silver now, I've had uh, garlic pills, I've got eucalyptus, I've used oil of oregano, I mean... You know, what else is there? There's more. Certainly there's more. Pretty soon uh, I'm going to have to just do an exorcism. I have some evil spirit, some demon that has invaded my body. And uh, I, for the life of me, have not been able to get he or she to vacate. So anyway, I call upon all of my 
uh, loyal band of listeners out there, although you may be few, send me your energy and heal me from this demon that is such the bane of my last three weeks. All right, so anyway, I'll get off my stage. But Okay, I've got a couple of things to mention real fast before we get into the show now. And um, Oh, vitamin C is the other thing. Yeah, thanks, Larry. I've been jamming vitamin C down my throat and uh, to no avail. And I'm in sort of a giddy mood, if you can't tell, uh, because I've been out for the first time in a little while, and I got to spend some time with my friends Casey and Sarah and some of the guys and girls down at the Blue Fugue, uh, who are friends of mine, and actually they gave me a couple of tickets to give away to the New Year's celebration that's going to be going on there next Saturday. And that is um, some great live music, actually. It will be, there's a band called Echelon. If you're not familiar with them, they play around here once in a while. But anyway, Echelon will be playing. And I'm not sure if they're really headlining or if they're just sharing the stage with another band called Jumbling Towers. They're sort of a St. Louis uh, rock and roll band. And anyway, there are a few other people that are sort of talking about coming. I'm not sure what's what the end, what, what the final bill is really going to look like, but it'll be really fun. And that's going to be at the Blue Fugue next Saturday. And I'm sure there'll be a cover charge. I don't know what it is now, but uh, regardless, when we take a break here at the, oh, I don't know, whenever I decide to take a break and put some music on, which we'll do in a few minutes, if you give me a call at uh, 874-5676 or 1-800-895-5676, you can... Uh, get a couple tickets to go down to the Blue Fugue for New Year's, okay? All right. So, what's happening? Tonight, as I said, we're going to air this interview with Joseph Chilton Pierce. If you're a parent, the mother or father of a child, if you're considering having children, if you love children, uh, if you have children in your heart whatsoever, or if you're a child at heart, all those things, you should listen to the interview with Joe Pierce. He's an amazing, amazing man, and uh, uh, I can't, um, I can't say strongly enough uh, how important he's been, literally, in my life. I mean, he's got it literally changed my life when I came across his readings, and then uh, eventually uh, contacted him and became friends, and now have the opportunity to interview him and do things like that. As a matter of fact, uh, he's working on a new book, and um, well, anyway, it's going to be fantastic. And I've had the opportunity to read a little bit from it. And anyway, I just really look forward to it. But he's getting up there in age, and he's not afraid to talk about what uh, he sees uh, as the real problems of our culture and society, and also the real solutions. And he talks about all this stuff, and has been talking about it for 30 or 40 years now. It's actually really funny. One of the things that he mentions in the interview is that um, it's naive to think that we're actually going to really change the uh, the way that things are he's been screaming from the rooftops you know for uh for many many decades now and you reach the people that you reach and that's the you know that's the tragedy and the beauty of the whole thing and i guess it's just uh you know part of the whole play so anyway i'm really excited to air that interview tonight joseph chilton pierce and, uh, of course, he's the author of Magical Child back in the early 1970s, Evolution's End, of course, Biology of Transcendence, and now his new book, uh, which he'll talk a little bit about um, during our interview, not much, just sort of in passing, but 
Anyway, an absolute uh, gem and a treasure to our culture and somebody I think that who will be remembered um, with, 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 with great honor someday, hopefully, <laughs> or forgotten, you know. But regardless, we're gonna have, uh, we're gonna share some of that with you tonight. Joseph Tilton Pierce. That's coming up probably in about 45 minutes. All right. Okay. And um, next week, it's New Year's. All right. It's actually the day after New Year's, January 2nd. The program next week. So I'll have Kent Stedman on the air from CyberspaceOrbit.com. Kent, of course, my close friend and the Bard. Uh, I, a big smile, of course, comes to my my face as I begin to speak of him. But I can't wait to be on the air together. It's been a while since we've had Kent on the air. And we'll play some bluegrass music from Sweets Mill uh, Bluegrass Band. And we'll talk about music and imagination and creativity and all the stuff that the Bard is about. And he'll be coming to you live from his cave in Seattle. Uh, so anyway, I'm really excited to talk to Kent again next week. Of course, he's excited to be on the program as well. So always check him out, by the way, on the web at www.cyberspaceorbit, C-Y-B-E-R-S-P-A-C-E-O-R-B-I-T, cyberspaceorbit.com. And uh, Kent, you know, is the inspiration for this show. I would never have done this were it not for him sort of uh, giving me the ideas and the and the, the will and the courage to to, to finally just decide to do it. So, anyway, I love you, Bardo, and I can't wait to talk next week. Okay, so what else after that? The ninth. I'm not sure exactly what I'm going to do on the ninth. Um, I have a couple of things that. Uh, well, I just don't want to talk about it yet because it's sort of special. So, but I'll wait to see if it works out. If not, uh, we'll see. In the same sort of for the sixteenth, um, the twenty-third, uh, Paradise will be with us. Paradise Newland. And she's changed her name, actually. Paradise now goes by the name Star. And we're going to let her tell us all about it uh, when she comes on the air. And it may seem sort of trivial, but I'm certain that it's not. So uh, we'll talk with uh, Paradise Newland. We'll talk with Star, I should say, about water birth and the amazing experiences that she had in England and in Hawaii. They're building some uh, birthing centers there uh, that will be... Uh, dolphin-assisted, believe it or not, water-birthing places. So sort of fits in with the theme uh, tonight, actually. Uh, Paradise is a big fan of Joseph Chilton Pierce, as a matter of fact. But anyway, she's doing great stuff in Hawaii, and we'll find out what she's up to exactly. And uh, that'll be on the 23rd, Paradise Newland, uh, coming to us from the Sirius Institute. And Michael won't be with her this time. We'll talk to Michael Heisen sometime, uh, sometime down the road. But everything's cool. I just want to concentrate on Paradise's project uh, right now with the children, the birthing centers that she's working on. Okay? All right. Uh, of course, we have Dennis McKenna and Stephen Buner coming up again sometime. Haven't quite settled on the date, but that'll be in March. Paul Stamets is coming. I don't know. Lots of fun stuff coming up. So, all right. Let's play a little bit of music here, and we'll come back and get things going with... You know what? Actually, I think I'm going to do something before we play some music. You know, I like Maya Angelou. And she's a wonderful poet. And she wrote a poem, actually a Christmas poem. And I'm not that big of a fan of uh, the the dogmatic version of Christmas. But it certainly is a great opportunity to, to read an amazing piece of poetry that was written for this particular time of the year by Dr. Maya Angelou. And so I'm going to read it here, and then we'll play some music afterwards, and then we'll move along with the program. And again, I apologize for my... Um, 
uh, for my my vocal capacity or incapacity, uh, I should say tonight, um, because of my cold. But anyway, I'll do I'll do the best I can with it. All right, all right. This is uh, it's called Amazing Peace, a Christmas poem by Dr. Maya Angelou, and it is an amazing piece, I should say. And you know what? I'm gonna play this music. I think as a background to it. This is Robert Cardi, and this music is called Beautiful Sky, and I just sort of decided to do it now, and I hope it works. Thunder rumbles in the mountain passes, and lightning rattles the eaves of our houses. Floodwaters await us in our avenues. Snow falls upon snow, falls upon snow to avalanche. Over unprotected villages, the sky slips low and gray and threatening. We question ourselves, what have we done to so affront nature? We worry, God, are you there? Are you there, really? Does the covenant you made with us still hold? Into this climate of fear and apprehension, Christmas enters. Streaming lights of joy, ringing bells of hope, and singing carols of forgiveness, high and bright up in the bright air. The world is encouraged to come away from rancor, come in the way of friendship. It is the glad season. Thunder ebbs to silence, and lightning sleeps quietly in the corner. Floodwaters recede into memory. Snow becomes a yielding cushion to aid us as we make our way to higher ground. Hope is born again in the faces of children. It rides on the shoulders of our aged as they walk into their sunsets. Hope spreads around the earth, brightening all things, even hate, which crouches breathing in dark corridors. In our joy, we think we hear a whisper. At first, it is too soft, then only half heard. We listen carefully. As it gathers strength, we hear a sweetness. And the word is peace. It is loud now. It is louder. It is louder than the explosion of bombs. We tremble at the sound. We are thrilled by its presence. It is what we have hungered for. Not just the absence of war. 
but true peace, a harmony of spirit. comfort of courtesies. Security for our beloveds. And their beloveds. We clap hands. And welcome the peace of Christmas. We beckon this good season to wait a while with us. We, Baptist and Buddhist, Methodist and Muslim, say, Come, peace, come and fill us. And our world with your majesty, we, the Jew and the Jainist, the Catholic and the Confucian, implore you to stay a while with us so we may learn by your shimmering light how to look beyond complexion and see community. It is Christmas time. A halting of hate time. On this platform of peace, we can create a language to translate ourselves to ourselves and to each other. At this holy instant, we celebrate the birth of Christ. Into the great religions of the world, we jubilate the precious advent of trust we shout with glorious tongues at the coming of hope. All the earth's tribes loosen their voices to celebrate the promise of peace. We angels and mortals, believers and non-believers, look heavenward and speak the word aloud. Peace. We look at each other, then into ourselves, and we say without shyness or apology or hesitation, Peace, my brother. Peace, my sister. Peace, my soul.
This is Mike, and uh, this is Radio Orbit, and it's 11.30 on the 26th of December, 2005, getting ready to close this year out, and I'm going to play one more piece of music from Robert Carty. By the way, wow, thanks, Robert, for writing that piece. That was called Beautiful Sky, and I'm so glad that I decided to uh, play it behind that poem. It uh, made me probably read it differently than I would have ever imagined so I appreciate you writing that. And Larry, thanks for uh, uh, not wavering and making sure that I included this music tonight. So, And one of the things that we're doing here on Radio Orbit, um, if you've been listening to the program for the last six or seven weeks, you know that all the music that's being played now is independent music. I'm not playing any, any commercial music anymore. Uh, it may not always be from uh, Columbia or local. I'm... Uh, I am actually going to be doing a show that features the music of Rutherford uh, in the next few weeks. I just haven't decided what sort of, um, you know, when I pick the, it has to work with the theme of the show. It has to work with the topic and the guest that we're going to do the interview with and that sort of thing. So, but uh, there are some local musicians certainly that we're going to start to feature on the program, Rutherford uh, being one of them. Ruth uh, is tremendously talented and she's with, a great band now, uh, not to take anything away from the rest of her band members. Jeff and the other guys are all really talented musicians and writing good music. And I'm going to play a bunch of their stuff some uh, night in the future when we have a show that, that, that makes sense to play it with, uh, probably in the next three or four weeks. And uh, C3, the guys from C3, we're going to do something with them. I want to feature them throughout an entire program. Their music is just mind-blowing for anybody who's had the luck to see them because they only do their thing uh, four times a year. And I just missed the Solstice show that was on the 18th of December because I was up in Chicago. Uh, but I heard it was a great show out there at Cooper's Landing and uh, Jeff Wheeler and uh, Mike Robertson and the other guys. They're sort of the... Um, sort of the roots of the whole thing, and then the there are lots of different members that sort of come and go and revolve around C3. But it's a it's an amazing group of people, regardless of who shows up. And uh, it was a great show, I guess, on the 18th. And hopefully they recorded. In fact, certainly they recorded some of that, made video as well. And we'll get to see some of that uh, if you're lucky uh, on the cable. Network 3, I think, is the station, but they're going to start to air some of this stuff. So keep your eyes out for C3. Uh, the Solstice show from the 18th of December will be on Cat TV coming up. And and uh, and like I said, I'm going to try to play some of that stuff on the program here in the next few weeks when we uh, come up with a fitting topic and, and Jeff gets me uh, a, a bunch of music that we can play on the program. So anyway, lots of really good stuff around town. 
and uh, sort of quiet actually tonight. I was I was coming up Ninth uh, Street, and there's nobody in town. It's like all the kids are um, away for for the holidays or at home from school. And usually at 10:30 on Mondays, when as I and I sort of have this ritual that I go through. You know, I go down to the Fugue and I have a beer or something, and I talk to people, and then I come down here. And Ninth Street is usually buzzing right about that time. Well, tonight it was just like a total ghost town. It was really strange, sort of. And uh, the sky was clear, and we haven't even done space weather yet. And I'm looking at my papers here, but we do have some extra time because this interview I did with Joe uh, Joe Pierce um, wasn't as long as. Uh, as they typically are, and I and I so rarely do um, taped interviews anymore. It's kind of cool to have the freedom. Actually, I don't have to call the guy at exactly midnight, and uh, don't have to count on being completely tied up for those two hours. So we have another two and a half hours, and I'll sort of freeform it tonight, I guess, as it's <laughs> sort of uh, taking place that way anyway. And what else is I look at my papers here, which, are, which, which I might as well have just thrown away. Wow, okay, well, let's do a piece of music here. Again, thanks to uh, uh, Robert Cardi for the music and to Maya Angelou for that poem. All right, we'll come back and we'll get things back on track in a few minutes. We'll do space weather, and uh, I'll tell you about an explosion on the moon. <laughs> and um, I'll play an amazing piece of audio tape from 1942, Los Angeles. Uh, in the midst of a UFO um, sighting that was reported by the CBS Morning News crew. It's classic, and it's like four minutes long. Anyway, I'll play that in a few minutes, and uh, we'll come back with all that stuff. This is Mike. You listen to Radio Orbit, and we'll be back in just a few minutes, all right? This is uh, more stuff from Robert Cardi, and it's called Dreaming Earth. Thank you. 
let this thing by Robert Carty finish off here this last 45 seconds or so in the background. This is Mike Hagan, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. Let's do space weather here. Uh, the sun uh, yesterday was relatively calm. There's a couple, three or four sort of smallish sunspots, but nothing really uh, to create anything substantial, large flares or anything like that that we talk about sometimes. However, uh, there was some reasonably uh, intense activity just a few days ago and creates this sort of solar wind that takes three or four days to get here and it's picking up as we speak and uh, for people in the northern latitudes right now as the nights are longest um, you really get a great opportunity to see the aurora borealis the northern lights and the 28th tomorrow night and the 29th should just be uh, spectacular if you have clear skies. Uh, even if you don't, it doesn't matter at that point um, if you're in the northern latitudes. But we'll see how far how far south it gets. There was um, an interesting question. So a girl named Beth called a week or two ago and asked, you know, is it possible that the aurora borealis could be visible down here at the latitudes of sort of the mid-latitudes of Missouri where we are? And, yeah, I, I, you know, we talked about it, but it, it's possible. It just has to be super intense activity. And... Um, I don't know. We're not seeing that really right now, and I doubt that we'll have the opportunity over the next few days. But you never know. The sun can do uh, do its thing whenever. And uh, three or four days later, we get to see it, perhaps. All right, so um, I've been watching Venus, too, for the last few weeks. I've been talking about it on the air. I love to watch Venus uh, in the southwest as the sun sets. And it's just so big and bright, you can't miss it. And uh, it's just a beautiful sight. And actually, I was, as I've been looking at it and learning more about it, it turns out that Venus actually has like phases, just like we talk about phases of the moon. And, you know, it has a gibbous phase, and it ebbs and waxes and wanes and all this sort of thing. Um, and right now, if you look at Venus, even though uh, it just looks like sort of a bright, a very bright, actually the brightest a star in the sky right now. It'll start right around sunset, by the way. If you look to the southwest, you'll see it'll be the first star uh, that you see in the sky at night, even though it's not a star. Of course, it's our sister planet, Venus, uh, just a few million miles inside of our orbit toward the sun. And uh, anyway, Venus is shining brightly there in the southwest, and if you... Uh, if you look at it just with the naked eye, it just looks like a star. Um, but if you get a telescope with the right filter, a very simple filter actually, and look at Venus, you'll actually be able to see the phases of Venus. And it'll actually look like, uh, like right now you'll see a crescent, just like you would see the crescent moon. Um, and uh, it reminded me of the fractal nature of our whole thing, you know, life and existence and the way everything is sort of self-similar. The further out we look, we see uh, different representations of the same thing. And then the same thing happens when we look inward, uh, when we look at the small, the micro, and it's self-similar. Those are the only words that I can use right now, I guess. But it's beautiful and it's simple. And the universe appears to be that. It's not a machine. Uh, it's 
an organism, <laughs> it seems like, just like we are. And uh, just like the little bitty creatures that crawl around inside our intestines and uh, live in their own civilizations and worlds inside our body, and we don't even know that they exist, but they actually are symbiotes, symbiotic creatures that, uh, that live with us, and we actually require them in order to maintain stasis, equilibrium in our bodies. And, uh, and they require us as well as a place of safety and, uh, uh, and shelter and food and all the things that they need. And so, believe it or not, even the dullest among us and even the most evil and even the most good and even the most whatever have all of these things happening inside, whether they like it or not. You know, uh, the world is fractal, and there are things that are just absolutely outrageous that are happening all over. It's just a matter of recognizing it. Uh, it's a matter of how close you look. Uh, you know, stop and smell the roses. It was sort of a legitimate metaphor, it turns out. <laughs> so, and not just trivial. Anyway, so uh, speaking of uh, trivial things, let's talk about something that is trivial, an explosion on the moon. Uh, the torrid meteor showers that were peaking in November, some a whole bunch of NASA money. Now, this is brilliant money spent, right? These guys stare at the moon. And, uh, and in this particular case, they caught with their fancy cameras uh, the impact of a small meteor, one of the torrids. Uh, and the reason they call it the torrid is from our perspective on Earth, the meteor stream comes from the constellation, the direction of the constellation Taurus. So they call it the Taurids. Same thing happens with the, the Leonids. That means that it apparently, from our perspective, comes from the direction of the constellation Leo. And so that's basically how they name all of these, uh, these meteor streams. But, but anyway, one, as they were staring at the Taurid meteor stream or staring at the moon, uh, they got lucky. Apparently this is luck, according to the NASA scientists, but they saw the impact of a small meteor on to the moon. And uh, they said that it, uh, <laughs> it exploded like 70 kilograms of TNT. So, whatever that's worth to you, there, there you have it. The scientists have determined that a meteorite has hit the moon and uh, it has detonated with approximately the power of 70 kilograms of TNT. So there's your space agency money hard at work. Right? And that's why we haven't left the orbit of this planet for the last 35 years. Or there's more to it. I don't know. Maybe it's like Michael Sarion says. Maybe, maybe we are really quarantined. <laughs> you know, Maybe it's sort of like until you can play nice in the sandbox, you don't get out of the local neighborhood, so to speak. I don't know. Who knows? Fun to chat about it, though. All right, so this sort of has to do with space weather, and it'll finish off the hour sort of nicely as well. This is unbelievable. Listen to this. It is a... Um, and thanks to, uh, to this guy, I don't know who his name is, Wallace B., but he sent it to the people at Coast to Coast, and they were cool enough to post it, and uh, it's an old recording, and it's been legitimized. It's it's the real thing, and you can, you know, if you if you have the gumption, go find out for yourself. But it's 
63 years old, and uh, uh, this guy writes, um, uh, recalling the UFO roundtable program that Coast to Coast did on April 14th, and the request from listeners uh, to listeners from Linda Moulton Howe for material related to the 1942 Los Angeles UFO incident. I recently came across a recording of an actual CBS morning news broadcast from the morning of February 24th, 1942, containing a detailed account of the UFO incident uh, over Los Angeles as it was occurring uh, the previous evening. So, anyway, this is it. And uh, you can check it out for yourself, all right? And this is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. We'll be back in just a few minutes. World, Wednesday, February 25th. Once again, Columbia's correspondents in world capitals and in the fighting zones in the Western Pacific are ready to give you the latest news direct by shortwave radio. And now for news of our own West Coast, we take you to Los Angeles and the report of Byron Palmer. Anti-aircraft guns went into action against unidentified aircraft in the Los Angeles area shortly after 3 a.m. Pacific wartime this morning. The anti-aircraft guns began barking during a blackout ordered by the 4th Interceptor Command at 2.25 a.m. The unidentified object, which some sources thought might be a blimp, moved slowly down the Pacific coast from Santa Monica and disappeared south of Long Beach. Army officials declined to comment on the possibility that the object might have been a blimp. However, it required nearly 30 minutes to travel some 25 miles far slower than an airplane. Watchers on the rooftop of the Columbia Broadcasting Building in the heart of Hollywood could plainly see the flashes of guns and searchlights sweeping the skies in a wide arc along the coastal area. Concussion of the shells could be felt in downtown Los Angeles, 15 miles away. U.S. Army planes quickly took to the dark skies, but whether they contacted the object has not been announced. Army officials say they will not comment until they receive a full report of the action. Although some watchers say they saw airplanes in the air, semi-official sources say they probably were the U.S. Army's pursuit. Several observers say they saw one or more planes spotlighted by 20 or 30 searchlights. The object moved southward, presumably over Huntington Park at the western edge of Los Angeles, and on southward to about Long Beach on the coast. By 3.30 a.m., observers said the object appeared to be over the south of Long Beach. Searchlights closely followed the object down the coast and kept it centered in their glare. Shells frequently could be seen bursting near the object, but none appeared to hit it. The shooting stopped about 3.30 a.m. The shooting brought warfare to the front door of this city of a million and a quarter population for the first time since December 7th. Already, it was alert to the presence off the Southern California coast of a Japanese submarine which had pumped 25 shells into an oil field north of Santa Barbara Monday evening. Because of the presence of the submarine, a three-hour alert was ordered at dusk last night, and civilian authorities stood at their posts while the Army and Navy continued their search for the submersible. The evening alert ended at 10.23 p.m., but another was sounded at 2.22 a.m., and the blackout followed within three minutes. It covered Los Angeles County from Santa Monica to Pomona. At 2.27, all Southern California radio stations were ordered off the air, except those in San Diego. 
Approximately 20 minutes after the firing died down, the ship returned and headed westward from Long Beach toward Santa Monica. The guns went into action again, hurling round after round of shells at the object. The second barrage appeared to be closer to downtown Los Angeles, since watchers could hear the concussion of the guns more clearly, and the flash of bursting shells was brighter. Then the ship disappeared for the second time over the ocean. We return you now to CBS in New York. And that was Byron Palmer on the West Coast. There you go, Byron Palmer on the West Coast. A little bit of history that you didn't hear about in school, about the 1942 UFO incident over none other than the big city of Los Angeles. And you heard it there from Byron himself. <laughs> anyway, amazing stuff. And uh, I'm just chatting with Jay across the, the, the aisle here with me about, you know, the, this, this idea that, uh, that there's no mystery. And it's just the whole world is full of mystery. And it just shows itself all the time. And sometimes more apparently than others, like sometimes it's just sort of in your face, like, like in 1942 in Los Angeles. And you could really tell by how befuddled the reporting was. I mean, it's obviously that nobody knew what the hell was going on here. It's a blimp. It's an airplane. They're shooting at it. They're detonations downtown Los Angeles. I mean, you really wonder, and it's a serious thing. I mean, this is documented, and you can look it up. You can find out what happened. Uh, you can look at, you can actually find out about the cover stories that were created because there were people that freaking died, all right? Those shells impacted places, all right? It's not all a joke. This is not a complete joke. You know, it sounds sort of funny at first, but it's a real deal. And, and, and there's a whole historical story behind this thing uh, that is just completely lost down the memory hole. And, you know... The, people's, uh, the people whose lives were lost or whatever, or, or, or who at least were a part of the whole thing, I mean, it's, it's novel, if nothing else, you know? I mean, it's a great story. It's a great way to go, I guess, you know? But I'm going to tell their story, you know? Why not? I mean, it's an amazing story. And you can also learn a whole lot about your government, uh, in the meantime, if you, you know, if you, if, you, if you look into little novelties like this. And you find out how, how serious they are about not allowing you and me to know certain things. You know, just leave it at that. Nothing more needs to be said. And I hate secrets. I'm a true anarchist. I hate secrets of all kinds. I hate secret societies. I hate any hierarchy where uh, certain groups are privileged to information that other groups are not privileged to. Uh, and that comes down to secrets. So if you got a secret, don't tell me. I'm the worst guy to tell because I will tell someone your secret. But if you want to learn about secrets, well, there are plenty of them out there to go learn about. I mean, there's, a, there's amazing things. And we have the tools at our disposal now to learn. You know, the Internet, trivialize it as you will. It's It gives you the opportunity to learn anything that you want to learn. Literally, it's the entire upload of human history. And so, everything from the profane to the mundane, <laughs> which is what gets most of the airtime, uh, to, you know, the ecstatic. 
you know, you'll find it, and you just got to go out there and look for it, and you don't even have to have money anymore. You can waltz into the library, and all you got to do is use your own mind and your own imagination and your own sensibilities and your own intelligence, your own creativity, not what somebody else, you know, is jamming down your throat because the programming's coming from all angles, I know, including mine. Don't think I don't have an agenda, you know? But I wear mine on my friggin' sleeve, <laughs> you know? And uh, the guy that I'm going to talk to in, um, well, that I, spoke to, that I spoke to on November 19th, Saturday morning, Joseph Chilton Pierce, that's what everybody's waiting to hear anyway. I'm sitting here babbling for, uh, you know, the show is not, people don't listen to it for me. They listen to it because of the guests that we get. So anyway, coming up, Joseph Chilton Pierce, and he is worthy of, uh, of, a, of an amazing introduction, yet he requires really none. If you know anything about children, he is absolutely essential reading. Uh, his books, The Magical Child, Evolution's End, uh, crack in the cosmic egg, of course, my gosh, uh, before Magical Child even. Um, and uh, Biology of Transcendence, I guess, is most recent. And he's got a new book that he's working on, although it's not, not out yet. But anyway, Joseph Chilton Pierce, he's just uh, an amazing guy and somebody who has had a, literally a transformative effect on my own life. Uh, and I say it really seriously and uh, has had a huge impact on the way that I'm raising my son, who's uh, two years old and three months now, and just had, you know, I just had to figure out how to deal with Christmas. And, with, you know, for the first time, he actually understands a little bit about what's going on. So, you know, and that's not an easy explanation when you really start to think about it, if you actually want to uh, teach a child something as opposed to just indoctrinate them into something, you know. It's... An interesting question that you have to uh, resolve. So, anyway, uh, Joseph Pierce, uh, we won't waste any more time. This is the interview I did with him on November 19th, and uh, we'll have a couple breaks in between. This is Mike Hagen. You're listening to Radio Orbit. I hope you enjoy this. First of all, uh, Joseph, thank you very much for being with me again this morning. As I said, I know how busy you are. We all have many, many things to do these days as the world gets going uh, faster and faster, it seems. So uh, so thank you very much. I appreciate it, and I value the time that you're spending with me. So thanks again. Well, bless your heart. I thank you. <clears throat> well, I, I value the, uh, the privilege of being asked. And by the way, you can introduce me as Joseph if you like, but after that, make it Joe. It's a bit easier. Perfect. The, the nature of, uh, of the conversation that I'd like to have with you, Joe, has to do with a couple of things. Primarily the human heart and also the relationship between the heart and technology. And for the people that are listening, that may seem like sort of a stretch, but, uh, but Joe and I will tie that together. And I think the best way to start, Joe, is to start at the beginning, really. And if we're going to talk about the heart, if we're going to talk about technology, uh, the first thing we have to do is talk about human beings a little bit so we can understand a little bit more about uh, our own place in this whole thing. So let's start right at the beginning. I'd like to ask you a couple of questions off the bat about childbirth. And this is the way we all come into the world. And maybe you could talk a little bit about the significance of childbirth and not necessarily the event in and of itself, although it is probably one of the most amazing and miraculous events that happened to any of us through our entire life, but also a little bit maybe about the methodologies of childbirth and how those things might uh, you know, affect children as they're brought into the world. 
Well, first of all, when you're, you're talking about childbirth, we say natural childbirth or technological childbirth, really. Childbirth is nearly always a cultural affair. In fact, a recent paper came out on technological or hospital childbirth as a cultural rite of passage in America, hmm. um, that women go through this rite of passage in the hospital that really leaves both themselves and their their emerging offspring um, bonded to the culture itself um, and, and a part of that culture, just as you might speak of in preliterate societies. One undergoes a rite of passage which gives you access to the inner workings of that particular culture. Hmm. Um, and, of course, I have been for 30-some years pointing out the disastrous effects of, of technological hospital childbirth. And a great many people have. This isn't just something in my own mind. The British National Childbirth Trust with giants like Sheila Kitzinger and Rosemary Foss I've been gathering data on this um, technological childbirth issue for decades, and it's, it's enormous, the library of information they've, they've put together. And yet, in spite of all this, we continue to do what we're doing at a, a, a grievous cost to our whole society, but at the support of our culture, yeah. that is, it supports culture and literally tears our society down. So the the uh, idea that we're going to, to offset this enormous force of culture and its uh, mechanical childbirth procedures is, is naive. Um, I've been hollering about it for 30 years. Suzanne Arms wrote her book about immaculate deception <laughs> uh, even before My Magical Child came out. Jean um, uh, um, Leedloff uh, came out with her book, The Continuum Concept, before that. And all of this put together, even though these books have been translated into many languages, right, right. have really not stemmed the tide of, of the takeover of childbirth as a technological medical issue. Uh, it hasn't stemmed that at all. In fact, the, the problem has grown and grown. Today, as we sit here, the American uh, obstetrical community, 40,000 obstetricians, uh, voted uh, overwhelmingly to allow women to, uh, to uh, elect a cesarean section by their own whimsy and preference. Uh, heretofore, one had to have good medical reasons for doing a cesarean section. Now those reasons have been thrown out the window, and women can elect to have one for their own convenience and the convenience of the medical people involved. Hmm. And we know that the overall result of cesarean sectioning, uh, while it, it's not an ironclad rule that it brings disaster, by and large it certainly does, and so we find that the situation gets worse and worse the more information we have concerning it. Very uh, so to speak of a return to sensible or sane childbirth procedures, I still say is the number one issue facing us. We either do that 
while we're down the tube as a culture for a lot of reasons. It sounds naive and simplistic to say that one cause can bring about the whole collapse we're facing, but essentially that is the case. Well, well, let's talk about that a little bit. In other words, what what are some of these uh, these difficulties that are brought about by quote unquote technological birth as opposed to uh, natural uh, childbirth or more natural methods? Well, that gets into there are a, a number of very specific biological needs that the infant has uh, at birth itself which are neatly canceled out and not met and can't be met by the hospital situation. Hmm. Uh, we refer to the general bonding of infant with its mother, and that is uh, now the hospitals are all saying, oh, we, we manage that. They place the newborn infant on the mother's belly for a few minutes and say that that is done, and they go on to their next step. Uh, and all of this is simply a, a counterfeit um, of what is really involved in the issue of bonding. Marshall Klaus and John Cannell at uh, Case Western Reserve University Hospital, 40 years of research into the overall effect both on the mother as well as the infant of this process that we blithely dismiss as bonding at birth. Mm-hmm. And you find that... Um, Every facet of, of development from that point on is dependent on this bonding procedure. The heart is critically involved. The actual completion mm. of the, 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 the growth of the heart and functioning of it is critically dependent on those first nine months following birth when the infant must be kept in close proximity to the mother's heart, which, if they're bonded at birth, the mother will always assure. Mm. And if they're not uh, bonded at birth, the mother would be indifferent about it, and they really are. Uh, Daycare, uh, now from two weeks on, is commonplace Mm. in America. Uh, The the, uh, pattern of, of bond between mother and infant being never even established to begin with. Uh, Kennel and Klaus both proved that if that bonding does take place between mother and infant, she, the mother, will do anything on earth to prevent separation from that infant. Her whole her whole system goes into single intent to protect that infant and maintain close contact with it at all costs. If this is not established at birth, you'll find your mothers, for for any reason whatsoever, economic social, cultural, um, the demands of the husband, whatever it might be, will rather blithely accept daycare in place of the bonded care that the infant must have. Uh, Not only is the heart involved and its development, and you'll find in every case a society that breaks up this bonding at birth will have an increase of heart problems hmm. in their society. Yeah, look at the heart problems we have in our country. Yes, uh, even extended now to women. Uh, and uh, the visual problems that we have, because vision itself is critical, hmm. the development of vision is critically dependent on certain signals the infant must be given from that moment of birth on. We look at the great neuroscientist Paul McLean, 
Mm-hmm. Uh, Forty years head of all brain development at right. the National Institutes of Health. And his statement, uh, in, I think it was 1998, he wrote a brilliant paper on the triad of needs of this newborn infant and ongoing needs throughout our life. The first great need being audiovisual communication. Hmm. Now that is radically different than audiovisual stimuli. We're talking about communication between the visual apparatus in that infant uh, and the visual apparatus in the mother. And the audio signals that go on with it and how critical that is to the development of that child's overall intelligence. Secondly is nurturing. Nurturing in its full extent. This is not just feeding the infant a diet that will keep it alive, but far, far more that that takes place in a mother breastfeeding her infant. We've eliminated, in the 20th century, we eliminated 97% of all breastfeeding, and we saw a continual deterioration in the well-being of our children, continuing right on up until this time. So uh, the final thing, that the third need that McLean saw for the for the human being to thrive is play. Hmm. And he pointed out that play will automatically follow the infant being given audiovisual communication, nurturing, and those two give rise automatically to play. To play. And those are the three critical factors on which human life really depends. Wow. Lifelong. And if it's not established at birth, it's very difficult to establish later on. Yeah, I think that you've you've mentioned in a number of your books that much of this development that takes place is what uh, uh, I think you use the the terminology. I want to say state specific, but that's not uh, that, that's not particularly correct. In other words, there are certain windows where these things are 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 supposed to happen, and if you don't get in inside the window, then it becomes much more difficult. Oh, indeed, the McCarrison Medical Society in in Britain, uh, over a long study set up over about uh, thirty years or more at the famous Pioneer Health Clinic, proved that as these windows of opportunity open, such as bonding at birth, and then later on the various stages of development which the infant child should, should go through. When those windows of opportunity open, you're, you're talking about the awakening of an entire neural capacity in the child's brain to the appropriate stimulus. Mm-hmm. If that stimulus is given that intelligence, that whole category of intelligence, automatically functions in keeping with the nature of the stimulus given the infant child itself. Whereas if that stimulus is not given, nature must compensate for that missing stimulus, and compensation is long, Mm. expensive, that is, it takes a lot more energy, and is never as efficient in its last analysis as true function when the appropriate nurturing and care is given at the opening of each each of these stages of development. Okay. All right. Well, uh, so it turns out that basically the technological side of birth, uh, to to make it a headline of sorts, it basically puts the child uh, behind the eight ball from from the beginning, and it turns out that there are uh, not, not only... 
well, there are physiological factors and biological factors involved that actually change the child and the mother if these things are done correctly. And if they're not, uh, if, if they're not uh, done in the manner that, that, that you suggest, then these particular changes that should occur within the infant and the mother, which I think is so important that changes don't just occur in the infant, but they occur in the mother as well, uh, that those things aren't allowed to take place and then they begin behind the eight ball right off the bat. Yes. The interesting thing is research, and this is not just my idea. I mean, this sure, has sure. been going on for a long time. Uh, research shows that when the infant is born into the world and the mother gives, makes this skin-to-skin contact with that infant, immediately the infant starts opening up levels of intelligence in that mother that she didn't even know she had, it awakens in the mother various very powerful ancient instinctual drives, gives her tremendous strength, uh, courage, Mm. intelligence, insight into the needs of the infant, and a profound drive to meet those needs with all all her energy. And we, we say that that. A true bonding at birth is literally a rebirth for the mother herself, and it, as it will be for fathers if they <laughs> happen to be present. Right. So the birth of a child into a family is the chance for that 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 family as a whole unit to open up to a to an entirely new world within itself. That sounds very romantic, but it just happened to be biologically the case. We're not just talking about something hypothetical. Yeah, and for people out there who have experienced it themselves, you know, who have children who have been in these situations, uh, and I have been, um, I, it, it, you don't even have to argue it. It becomes self-evident. It, it, it does become self-evident. The only problem is it's rather like a, a tone-deaf person. <sighs> How are you going to explain to a tone-deaf person the ecstatic joys of music? Well, the person who has not been bonded at birth cannot understand what's missing because they don't have the, the uh, capacities uh, to, to understand that. Mm-hmm. That is, they're starting off at, at short-changed from the very beginning. And that's the great problem here. For a whole century, practically, we eliminated this critical bonding factor in so many of our children and their mothers. And as a result, those people now can't realize the severity of the Hmm. issue. They can't even realize what's happening with their own life. They look out and see everything in shambles. And, of course, they project that out there rather than recognizing that they themselves have been damaged and are part of that scene of problems that they're looking at. Right, and, and, we, and we have a cyclical situation now where it's going on for a number of generations, so it becomes uh, a, a real difficult thing to pull out of. You have to look at uh, Darwin's, uh, the great second uh, opus that Darwin turned out in his old age called The Descent mm. of Humanity. Mm-hmm. His first book was The Origin of Species that functioned by, by random mutation and selectivity and survival of the fittest. But people don't realize that he spent the whole next 40 years of his life as a biologist and botanist. Mm. 
uh, working on his second great book. It's called The Descent of Humanity. And his claim in that second book was that the human mind, the human brain, could have only been developed through a new intelligence that had arisen out of this origin of species, the new intelligence being an intelligence of love and altruism. Hmm. Do you ever hear of that being attributed to Charles Darwin? Certainly not. Hardly at all. That work of his got buried immediately. Why? Because what we call neo-Darwinism, which has led us to behaviorism and the whole 20th century fiasco of uh, chemical medicines and, and uh, artificial schooling and so on, all of that neo-Darwinism has arisen from his first book. His second book would have corrected that, that radical misunderstanding. Hmm. But uh, people pay no attention to it. Amazing. What we're talking about here is that, that to, to bring about a, a successful human being, the infant must be given from the very beginning, in fact, from the moment of conception on, these two factors, uh, love and altruism. Altruism me means love of one's neighbor, mm. and uh, love as itself means love of oneself. Altruism, love of one's neighbor. And given that as the emotional ambient into which the child is conceived and, and, and born, then you, you have a different ball game uh, than you have if these, these critical needs are not met. And they're not being met presently. Just look around you. The mm. fact that in, in Thailand, which was once called the land of the smiles, uh, but was occupied by our military many decades ago, and the medical people in Thailand began to ape the graces of military uh, doctors and began to birth their infants in Thailand as the doctors did uh, their infants in their military hospitals. And we know that uh, has always been an atrocious situation. Oh, my gosh. Today, 80% of all infants in Thailand are delivered by cesarean section. Oh, my God. And what has happened? The nation as a whole, it's social structure has collapsed, its educational system has collapsed, they're still smiling, but underneath this smile there is an enormous weeping going on. They sell their children into prostitution. There is a remarkable collapse in moral fiber. Why? The bonding process has been broken up. People won't believe that. They say, oh, look at all the other factors, but when you look at all the other factors, they also can be attributed to mm. this breakup of the true bonding with love and altruism right. that the child is expecting. Well, and again, I want to reinforce this. The, this whole idea of stage-specific development basically means that you have to build a foundation, and the foundation begins, as you say, not even at birth. It begins at conception, and the, and the behaviors and the attitudes and the... Uh, lifestyle and environment of the mother and father uh, even before the birth uh, occurs is uh, significant in the development of, uh, of the child even before birth. Marcy Axness, who um, did her doctorate at the Santa Barbara Graduate School of Pre- and Perinatal Psychology, Marcy Axness has done brilliant work 
on how the emotional state of mother and father before conception enters in as one of factors in the overall development of that infant. Um, so we're, we're finding that more and more the, the, the emotional state uh, of, of uh, the, the whole culture giving rise to, to birth, that emotional state is the, probably the most critical of all factors. Hmm. And we give it the least credit of all. Amazing. All right. Um, let's move on a little bit. There's the ongoing question of nature versus nurture. And maybe you could uh, could talk to that a little bit. Well, when you get into the genetics of it, you're looking at that final mystery of it all called DNA, hmm. uh, which has to be one of the great mysteries of, of life itself. Right. But you find that DNA carries within it templates or blueprints for certain structures, uh, such as our body with its two arms, legs, and a single head, etc. But it can't carry within it the actual content fulfilling the form with living content. That must come from the environment. Hmm. Uh, and so we find that the nature of the environment determines the way the form itself finally grows. So uh, you can't say nature versus nurture. They're intimately involved in each other, kind of like the Chinese yin-yang. Hmm. Uh, true nurturing is absolutely natural to the human being, and our true nature as a human being is to nurture. Mm-hmm. Uh, precisely as Charles Darwin claimed in his last great work. Wow. So um, our, our true natural impulse toward each other is one of love, altruism, caring for the other. We are, as Jean Leadloff just wrote beautifully about 30-some years ago, we are by nature social creatures. We need to belong to each other. We long to belong to each other and are lost without that belonging as witness so many of our children committing suicide and all sorts of violence mm-hmm. because they feel that they don't belong to anything or anybody. So this means of nature and nurture, we've, we've divided into a dichotomy at war with itself. This is ridiculous. we express that war within ourselves as a result. And we're a a person divided against ourselves Mm -hmm. as a result of that. And this is clearly brought out in all the research into the heart. Right, and it it, it appears that the whole nature versus, and you make a great point that it's this us-against-them sort of thing, which is really just an extension of the entire Western uh, prevailing attitude of uh, inherent dualism that's that that it's it's either this or that it can never be both and well you think of the whole history of western science uh, arising from the idea that nature is our enemy <laughs> right and as bacon said we must rest her to her knees rest her secrets from her and use those secrets against her for our own well-being that was essentially the the real genesis of, of uh, the scientific process. And so right from the beginning here in the West, we have made an enemy of nature. <laughs> and as a result, we see that we're in process of destroying that nature. 
we think of old Sigmund Freud and his talk about how nature is our enemy out to do us in on every hand and all we can do is, is to to uh, join the scientific endeavor to solve the secrets of nature and use them against her for our own well-being. Now that has led us into the greatest disaster of history. I think of the of the creation of the bomb mm. there in World War II, as, as Robert Sardello says, the bomb represents hatred in its greatest form since the world began. <laughs> the bomb is an expression of pure hatred of life itself. And, of course, we all deny that and say it's expediency, no. it's necessary, etc., etc., etc. No, it's an expression of hatred. Yes, and how, how could it be anything but? When we look at the entire ecological mess which we have gotten ourselves into, destroying nature, which is to destroy our own greater body. Right. It's the most suicidal move a species could make. In fact, I think of the great Paul McLean, our neuroscientist, again saying that there had been no historical precedents in our history of a culture that has driven its own children to the level of suicide we have. And, of course, that's because it's the third highest cause of death in American children, suicide. And what does that represent, you see? Hmm. Uh, um, uh, um, alienation, a loss of all hope in our children, a feeling of being cut off, not belonging, and above all the human being must belong to the human society. To, to flourish. All of that, of course, is, is expressed in the new research into the heart. All right. Uh, that's a good place to take a break. We'll be back in just a few minutes with my guest, Joseph Chilton Pierce. And this is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. Uh, and this is an interview on tape that I recorded with Joseph Chilton Pierce just a few weeks ago on November 19th. And uh, it's a wonderful conversation. I hope you're enjoying it. And we'll get back to that in just a few minutes. We're going to have a little bit of music here. Take a break with uh, Robert Cardi providing the music for tonight. And if you're interested in any of this stuff, of course, go on the web, www.mikehagan.com. And uh, you can get over to Joseph Chilton Pierce's website. He uh, doesn't have a personal website, but he's incorporated over there at touchthefuture.org. And they're doing wonderful work with children. And the show tonight is about uh, children, if nothing else, I guess. It turns out. Didn't really plan it that way. But uh, anyway, uh, we'll get back to Joseph Chilton Pierce in just a few minutes, okay? This is Mike Hagan. You're listening to Radio Orbit. And uh, Robert Cardi as well on the, on, the, uh, on the web. Just go over to MikeHagan.com and click on the music section, okay? This is more from Robert Cardi, by the way. And the song is called Dreamscapes. All right, I hope you enjoy it. And by the way, you can give me a call here at uh, 573-874-5676 or 1-800-895-KOPN if... Uh, you want to chat. All right. Thanks. Bye. Mm-hmm. 
right, uh, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. Sort of a long break there, but I want to play that music all the way through. Wonderful stuff from Robert Carty, uh, providing the music for the show tonight and accompanying Joseph Chilton Pierce, among no other. So let's get right back to that. Uh, segment number two of Joseph Chilton Pierce. This is about 26 minutes long and will go un- uh, uninterrupted from me or anybody else. All right, uh, and one more time on the web, MikeHagan.com. You can find out information about this musical artist and about Joe Pierce. All right, well, uh, that's a good place to make a little move here again. Um, Let's talk about intelligence then a little bit as we we begin begin moving uh, toward the heart in the conversation. What is intelligence, Joe? Well, everybody uses the term intelligence uh, just like we use the term mind. Uh, and really it's very difficult to find a definition of mind. Mm. In fact, in this book I'm working on right now, I've, I've devoted the whole first uh, five or six chapters to exploring simply what is mind. Hmm. Uh, recently uh, in the Scientific American, it ran a, a sizable article on neuroscience discovering this, where self arises in the brain, self meaning mind. And, of course, they're trying to find some particular module or noodle in the brain that produces a sense of self. And this this is an absolutely fruitless task. The same thing with intelligence. What is intelligence? It's simply the ability of any organism or any function, any process, to maintain itself in, a, in, in an efficient, productive manner. The intelligence of the human being is the ability to respond to its life in, for its own well-being. And the well-being of oneself can never be bought at the expense of the well-being of another, since on the final analysis, we're all part of the same organism, the same species. So intelligence is the ability to move for our well-being. I contrast that with intellect. Intelligence uh, is that which makes anything work, so to speak. Any organism from a virus on, its intelligence is its ability to reproduce itself and function um, in, in a, a manner that's, that's efficient and for its own well-being. On the other hand, intellect is a purely human invention of our mind-brain, our sense of separateness. And through intellect, we open up to evolution a whole new realm of possibility. So long as this intellect is connected with the intelligence of the system, we, we really have the whole, the whole, the stars of this are, are our limit. Mm. We're unlimited in that respect. But in intellect, <coughs> separated from intelligence, almost inevitably becomes destructive. And so that's our problem today. In fact, if you look at the great Goethe, the, uh, poet, uh, playwright, scientist of a couple of hundred years ago uh, when he wrote a little parable called The Sorcerer's Apprentice. 
uh, of the sorcerer, uh, um, the magician, having an apprentice who watches what the magician is doing, and then when the magician turns his back and is gone, the sorcerer tries to work those himself mm-hmm. without that great intelligence guiding him, and he immediately gets himself into an absolute suicidal, <laughs> devastating position. Right. And, of course, Gertie was saying 200 years ago that that's what the new scientific process opening in that early 19th century was doing. Uh, it was opening a, a, a can of, of worms, in effect, moving into an area that the kind of intellect making that move would be incapable of controlling. And certainly we have seen Gertie's uh, Sorcerer's Apprentice lived out on every hand today. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it turns out that uh, much of this stuff has been written about uh, in the past, apparently. You mentioned Goethe, and uh, Rudolf Steiner touched on much of this, too, I think. Well, Steiner, of course, understood uh, all of this remarkably well. Uh, Rudolf Steiner was uh, trained in the sciences, had a Ph.D. in the science from a German university, but there, a hundred years ago, just about, he said that the greatest discovery of the human being <laughs> would be that the heart is not a pump, as had been proposed by science, but was profoundly more than that, mm. and that the heart was actually the center of the entire universe, um, that the whole universe contracted to a single point within the heart and then radiated out as our experience of that universe. Now, that making a very poor summary of this incredible analysis uh, that, that Steiner had made of, of the role of the heart, and Steiner saying that, that um, the greatest discovery we would make in the late 20th century would be that the heart is not a pump, but profoundly more, and that our great challenge from that point on would be to allow the heart to teach us a new way to think, and that through that new way of thinking, we would open up to a whole new evolution of development. Now, that was a remarkable statement to make, and it has been proven to be exactly the case, just as Steiner had predicted. So, so Steiner had a capacity to what he called move into the higher realms and gain information not available to us on an ordinary intellectual level. And he spoke of this critical necessity of our intellect in our head and this intelligence, of the, the whole universal intelligence, which generates through the heart. There again we get into the business of, of uh, the uh, contrast between our individual ego-driven intellect and this heart-driven intelligence which moves only for well-being. Maybe we could do a quick summary on the difference between intelligence and intellect. Intellect, apparently, as you point out in uh, <clears throat> in the biology of transcendence, one of your uh, recent books and a, and a fantastic uh, sort of synthesis of much of what you've done over the years. But in Biology of Transcendence, you make make the, the, the point that intellect, and I thought this was brilliant, 
was intellect is primarily concerned with asking the question, can it be done? Is it possible? And intelligence, looking at those same things, but saying, is it also appropriate? Yes. You know, I made that uh, proposal, in fact, it spelled it out at great length in my book, my sixth book called Evolution's End. Right, Evolution's End, sure. Yes, and I had uh, had said then that that intelligence asks, is it appropriate? Intellect asks only, is it possible? Hmm. And, of course, intellect connected with intelligence finds everything is possible, but it selects only those things which are appropriate to well-being. Hmm. Now, if we had, had followed something like that, our situation would have been quite different today. Right, back to, back, back to the bomb that we were talking about earlier. Yes. In other words, that, that's an intellectual achievement, <laughs> but certainly not an intelligent one. Yes, it was, it was an intellectual, brilliant intellectual achievement um, and an expedient achievement to try to bail us out of a mess we had also helped create. But um, the, the issue is that were our whole intellect been in the service of intelligence, were there the appropriate heart-mind connection and bond between the two, um, then we wouldn't have created the situation calling for bombs <laughs> and so forth right. to begin with. Right. Okay. I, I think of, uh, I've used this quote so many times, but the great cultural anthropologist Leslie White at the University of Chicago, years ago said that great societies rise and fall on an almost cyclic level, hmm. and they always fall by their own hand. Hmm. They commit suicide, in effect, by creating a level of complexity far greater than their capacity for solving that complexity and wow. finally self-destruct. And that's exactly what's happening today. There's no question that we're in a process of social self-destruction as well as ecological because we're it, mind and nature, as the old biologist Gregory Bateson said, mind and nature are an indivisible unit. I am nature. Nature is me. Right. And uh, if this unity is broken up and nature becomes my enemy, then I am my own enemy. Hmm. Which is exactly the situation apparently we find ourselves in. So yes, they're, they're, it, that's exactly our situation today. But of course, this will always be denied because our our leaders hold up enemies out there beyond our borders that are causing our trouble right. and organizing us into ways to eliminate those enemies and be free of our trouble. If you look at the work of the, the um, Gil Bailey and René Girard, the great French philosopher, I think now is at, at uh, Stanford University, a very old man, uh, they said that, the, that culture as a force produces violence by the limitations mm -hmm. and constraints it places on the true human spirit. And this violence then is is generates periodic warfare. That periodic warfare is an inevitable result of the cultural effect. And this was a, a earth-shaking 
kind of a proposition that you can't have a culture such as we have without periodic outbreaks of warfare. And this proves to be exactly the case. Look at the whole history of America. Right. We, our entire historical calendar is based on our wars mm. that we have been involved in since our inception. And apparently, I see no end to it. I see no way out of it. It is such a an impasse that we are at, uh, and it's it, it it it's mind-boggling when you you know talking to you about. Uh, the depth of it, uh, the depth of it is what is what is so disconcerting because uh, the the more deeper, the more deeply we get into it, the more you realize how really uh, ingrained and actually a part of the whole experience of Western life this whole thing is. Uh, you make the point about uh, leadership pointing out this us versus them mentality. And again, this is no different than the nature versus nurture mentality. It's always this uh, this us versus them. Um, and uh, always simply shifting targets and, mm. and projections. We call this projection, of course, in psychology. Right, right, right. <clears throat> when we, when we, that which is within us that we can't stand, we will always see it as without in I some see. other person. Right. Uh, by the way, a book just came out by a Sam Harris. And it's been on the New York Times bestseller list. It's called The The End of Faith. And then the subtitle is Religion, Terrorism, and the Future of Reason. Hmm. And it's a remarkable book. The only thing of it is he really ends up pretty much uh, saying what a lot of other people have said. We're, we're looking at the same situation that has happened over and over again throughout history of us versus them and so on. But for the first time in history, both sides have the bomb. Right, we know. And this changes the complexion of everything. Right. Uh, the, the way it's shaping up now into a, a global struggle where both sides have the bomb and one side is perfectly willing to take all human life necessary, including their own, <laughs> in order to protect their religion. And this is, um, this is really the situation we face today. But Harris ended up with kind of faulting Islam, or that ends up the, the biggest uh, no-no in his book. Uh, and yet, it's religion as a, as a cultural <laughs> process that causes the trouble. And uh, my little book that I've been working on ever since I published my last one, I titled, I don't know whether the publisher would accept it, or not, <laughs> the, the Death of Religion and Birth of Spirit. <sighs> and my, my this is a, a theme I brought up in my last two books, but I'm trying to carry it through on a much more clear uh, basis that our, our issue... Uh, today is we're facing the end of re the religious era. Religion being a, as Robert Sardella says, religion comes from the word religio, meaning right. to turn back to. Right, or to link back, yeah. To link back. And the minute we do this, we will always, always replicate our past history in perhaps some novel form. But, and can't escape that replication because 
to escape it means opening to an unknown future, mm. which he says is, is the future flowing into the present moment, giving us a, a, a new reality, this moment and mm. only this moment. So that's the, the situation we face. That would be, of course, the birth of spirit. Right. And so that's the, the really the, the title I would choose. I, I think Sam Harris's book would have been much more powerful had he said the end of religion rather than the end of faith. Mm. The human has only, you can say, two. there are two options open to us. <laughs> One is faith and the other is doubt. We speak of self-confidence, mm-hmm. that a person with self-confidence can do almost anything. Yeah. Whereas a person riddled with doubt Tonight. is, is uh, helpless. Hmm. Now, co- the word confidence means with faith. Hmm. So I think faith in ourselves, faith in our, our whatever the undertaking we have, must must. It, it's just so paramount. Uh, so, my little book. I'm, I'm speaking of the of the death of religion because religion is the opposite of faith. Mm. People don't realize right, this. Right, right. A scientist has to have great faith in the scientific method, or he simply isn't. He can't function as a scientist. Mm. The mathematician, the topologist, must have great faith in those theorems. Those incredibly complex intellectual theorems, uh, to be a mathematician. Right, right. right down the line, faith means power, mm. uh, uh, the uh, ability of the human to, to rise beyond limitation and constraint. Whereas doubt, remember the great poet William Blake said, sure. if the sun and moon should doubt, they would immediately go out. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, that's our great uh-huh. problem today. Mm. We, we really uh, face this profound loss of faith in humanity, in human nature, in the goodness of life itself. We've lost faith in life and are trying to bolster it with belief <laughs> in religion. Right. Right. And so we have the rise of fundamentalists all over the world. Might you know, fundamentalism is a, an absolutely new phenomenon. We think it's been around forever. Far, far from it. It's a brand new phenomenon in history. Really? Uh, a reverting back, a turning back in every respect, trying to grasp something in our past history that will indicate stability and safety and security. And, of course, nothing in our past can do that. (laughs) All we will do is replicate that past Mm. in our present moment. Mm -hmm. And what we're facing today is the end of religion. And that, that the fact that religion is decaying on every hand fills the person of religious conviction fear. (laughs) They literally, they're terrified. Suzanne Langer, the great uh, philosopher and student of Alfred North Whitehead, said the human's greatest fear is of a collapse into chaos should our ideation fail us. Mm. Our ideation is our whole cultural concept of who we are and how our world works threaten that, 
and we're filled with an un, a deep underlying terror of a collapse into chaos. And so if, if our religion is threatened, those of us who have based our life on religion and are invested in it are ready to pick up our good book with one hand and a cannon with the other to blow the heads off of anybody who disagrees with us. Yeah, amazing. And you're finding fundamentalists arising in the Jewish community, in the Islamic community, in the Christian community, in the Buddhist community, mm. mind you, yeah, yeah. in the in the Hindu communities, uh, communities that really, uh, such as the Hindu and the Buddhist, never had anything like uh, fundamentalists. Mm. But now they're they're reverting back to fundamental tenets, you know, and grasping that good book with one hand. But on the other hand, leading to to chaos and warfare on the other. Amazing, uh, Joe. How how much of this has to do with uh, male dominance hierarchies and and uh, paternalistic systems of 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 male superiority and 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 ego how much of that uh, uh, ties into this well all those terms are loaded terms the word ego is not a bad word in my lexicon it's simply the latin word for i our sense of being an individual mm-hmm. uh is ego and Lord knows, uh, we right now we what we uh, ego is under has really undergone a great erosion. Um, more and more people are caught up in an identification with group consensus, uh, and less and less identification as an individual able to stand their own on their own feet and make their own decisions. Mm-hmm. We're jerked about by. Uh, Puppets like uh, on on a string by culture itself. Right. Uh, the idea of some global mind that's going to emerge, it already is in what we call what has happened through media. Mm. Media has brought back a uniformity, a conformity of thought itself throughout the whole planet, which is deadly. Uh, we're finding that fewer and fewer people can think independently of media and what the culture thinks, hmm. and this is a, a, a this is a very dangerous situation. And it's easy enough to say it's male-dominated thinking or this, that, or the other. The truth of the matter is, the male responds according to his bonding and upbringing, the female according to hers. Hmm. Um, right now, our our need, according to some remarkable uh, neuroscientists and people in development, our need is to to produce males who are capable of bonding mm. um, and, and capable of nurturing and protecting their own offspring, right. which we find seriously eroded in this day and time. Mm-hmm. And we blame that on the domination of male intellects and so on. But it's also directly a result of females not being bonded to their interests. I understand. Birth, right, right, right. And giving rise to, to males who feel uh, ostracized, isolated, not belonging, and are hell-bent on getting hmm. out there and, and finding a place for themselves, regardless of how many people they have to step on to do they that. To do it, right. So that it, it's a vicious circle all the way around. 
that catches up women as well as men. Hmm. The idea that we're going to turn back to some goddess orientation of the past is this, is another form of fundamentalism hmm. and would be just as defeating as anything else. Uh, the, the goddess of the, of the earth itself, Gaia, what uh, Rudolf Steiner calls Sophia, the, the knowledge and wisdom of this living earth is essentially a feminine wisdom. Yes, I agree. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, simply, we, and that comes through the heart. Hmm. Just that's just that simple. And so our, our big problem is to, again, rediscover this great intelligence within the heart and bring our intellect, our ego, our sense of individuality into alignment with that intelligence within us. Okay. It's not a matter of uh, proving someone else wrong or anything else. It's bringing our own individual self, this ego of mine here in my head, into alignment with that great intelligence of the heart. And that that's the only step I can make from here to eternity is mm. to do it myself within myself. Anything else, I'm trying to maneuver my neighbor, uh, b- modify my neighbor's behavior in keeping with my own ideas. It's, that underlies our whole political system, uh, trying to engineer the behavior of other people and... Uh, it, it has never worked. Hmm. Yeah, so if I'm reading you correctly, it was an oversimplification and actually not not really a truism at all, this idea that it's a, a, a male problem or a female problem. In other words, a, a full-on matriarchy would, would, would bring no, probably the same sorts of things that we have right now. In other words, the key is a balance between the two, just like we need balance between nature and nurture, just like we need balance between the brain, the mind, and the heart. That's a great way to put it, Mike, and and I I can't improve on that at all. If you look at the the latest uh, neuroscience, uh, for instance, Elkanon Goldberg, rather poo-pooing the idea that the left hemisphere is masculine, the right hemisphere is feminine. Mm-hmm. He said this is much too simplistic. Hmm. And he goes on into the real deep, profound interactions that go on between these two parts of ourselves uh, as, as uh, far beyond any masculine-feminine mm. kind of a process. So uh, our, our reverting again to these these cliches and these easy categories of projection. Uh, my my problem isn't um, the the female dominance over my life, or <laughs> nor is the, my, the females of my life's problem my dominance over them. Right. The matter is a, it's it's a matter of relationship, mm. an appropriate balance of relationships. Well said. All right, another good place to take a break here. This is Mike. You're listening to Radio Orbit. And my guest tonight is Joseph Chilton Pierce. And you're listening to a recorded interview that was taped about four weeks ago, actually, on November the 19th, I guess five weeks ago. And uh, anyway, it was a pleasure to talk to Joseph, and I hope you're enjoying this interview. We're going to take a little break here and play some music from Robert Carty. And this song is called Immersion. And I hope you like it. We'll come back with the last segment of Joseph Chilton Pierce 
on Radio Orbit, and as always, uh, go on the web uh, to MikeHagan.com, and you can find out information about my guest tonight and about the musical guest as well, uh, Robert Carty. And uh, thanks, as always, to Larry, doing a great job on the web, and thanks uh, to everybody who's written in and called in, actually, over the last uh, 45 minutes or so as well. I'm checking email all the time, so you can always do that at uh, OrbitRadio at AOL.com. And anyway, uh, we'll get back to uh, business here right after a little bit of music from Robert Carty. This is called Immersion. You're listening to Radio Orbit.
All right, Robert Cardi. Uh, that song is called Immersion. There's a few songs uh, available on the web, too, that you can download and uh, put into your collection. Compliments of, of Robert. So you just go to the website and click on the music tab there, and you can download a couple of Robert Cardi songs uh, and share them with other people. All right, he's a great musician, and I'm pleased that he was... Uh, uh, Going along with the program and uh, wanted to be a part of the, uh, of the of the show tonight. So, anyway, okay, this is Mike. Uh, Mike, you're listening to Radio Orbit. My cold is really kicking in now. If you can't hear it, at one uh, nineteen a.m. on December twenty seventh, but it's a beautiful night. Actually, it's sort of clear out, and uh, um, we'll get right back to this interview with Joseph Tilton Pierce. All right. Well, let's take this a little bit further. Um, We've been talking about the brain. We've been talking about the heart. Everybody, for the most part, assumes that the brain uh, responsible for at least the majority of our cognitive ability. Most um, most imagine that that's the only place where where this sort of thing takes place. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about the heart again and physiologically how the heart is actually involved in well neurology or cognitive uh, decision making and this sort of thing. The Institute of Heart Math, Heart Math, mm. M-A-T-H. Right, out, out in Boulder Valley, California. Here. Yes. They have been working on this issue for 30, 35 years. They have some of the top flight scientists and, and uh, cardiologists in the world working with them. It's one of the most exciting fields going today. You don't hear much about it, but mm. they're doing remarkable things there. And they're the ones who have, have nailed all this down through straight laboratory uh, analysis. It's all quantifiable research. And the fact that the heart is a major intelligence in our system connected with the emotional cognitive structure of our brain, connected through unmediated neural system. Um, Direct connections between the neural component of the heart and the neural component in the brain. Uh, And the heart also is neurally connected with every major organ in the body and orchestrates the interaction and well-being of all these different, radically different processes going within us that all seem to get along better (laughs) with (laughs) each other than we do with ourselves uh, up here in our head. And so the heart is the major source of this intelligence of, of appropriate relationship between all the myriad parts that give us our life. The other thing is the heart is a major source of, of hormonal response in the body. It's the largest neuroendocrine neuro, neuro, uh, gland we have in our body. It produces a whole family of neurotransmitters and hormones which can perform profoundly change the functions hmm. of the brain and the body. That's and very, Joe, that, let me step in real fast. That is a, a, a pretty interesting statement because most people, when they think of the endocrine system, they certainly don't consider the heart part of that. They think of the thyroid and the pituitary and these glands here and there, but certainly not, uh, not the heart. And it turns out, as you're saying, that the heart is the primary of these. Oh, the, in fact, it was in, in uh, 1986, the Scientific American ran a big cover story on the discoveries of Roger and a group of, of uh, uh, cardiologists and, and physicians in uh, 
and physicists in in in, in France uh, who had discovered that the heart is this major endocrine gland of the whole body. Hmm. And since then, they have found, as I say, a whole family of pharmaceuticals, if you like, that the heart produces right, right. to try to make this system work right. And, of course, the, the problem is that if the heart's interaction with the brain, which can only take place through appropriate bonding, mm. if that breaks oh. down, then this capacity of the heart to, to mm. moderate and modulate and keep in balance the brain structure itself is is uh, compromised. Mm. So uh, there again we get back to the issue of bonding that we started off with. Mm. So the, the, uh, the third factor, though, that they found and which turns out to be the most critical of all, is the heart produces a powerful electromagnetic field, mm. which is the very same electromagnetic field effect found surrounding the Earth and operating through the Earth and the Sun and the solar system itself. Right. And we find that this entire electromagnetic spectrum in which our, both our, our, our solar system, our living world, and our body are all an integral part of, uh, that that resonates through our heart. Uh, this is, again, spelling out in, in very complex detail what Rudolf Steiner right. recognized 100 years right, ago. Right, right. So it's the heart's electromagnetic frequency produced, 60 times more powerful than all the electromagnetic energy of the brain. Mm -hmm. And we've all heard of brain waves and how we can trace those out now. Well, believe me, they're, they're minuscule compared to the, the electromagnetic frequencies produced by the heart. Mm -hmm. And these electromagnetic frequencies of the heart profoundly affect our life. But also, they are themselves the fields of the heart are profoundly affected by our emotional system up in our head. Mm -hmm. There are no one-way streets in this process <laughs> of life. Everything is a dynamic interaction, mm -hmm. and the interaction is between mind and heart. heart. Uh, <laughs> you don't have one without the other. Right, right. Obviously, again, back to what we've been seeing when these, when these connections are cut off or, or never established... The, the result is the news of the day. Yes, that's all. Just turn on your radio, even NPR, and you'll get it all. Uh, and, of course, it's the interesting thing about media, by the way, I have a recent NASA photograph mm -hmm. taken from an uh, orbiting satellite, and one of these nanosecond electromagnetic images of the Earth and its electromagnetic fields, which are, 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 we know have always been produced by the Earth. Sure. Uh, and these fields in, them, in themselves would be as orderly as the electromagnetic fields produced by the sun. They're extraordinarily or orderly and coherent fields, mm -hmm. although there are millions of them on the sun. It's, it's myriads of these fields being produced instant by instant, including the ones that go out and embrace the entire solar system. Right, right. The sure. recent images taken of the Earth show that beneath these, these orderly, organized fields, on, on the direct surface of the Earth is an enormous 
wiggling, squirming like a bag of worms, uh, completely incoherent, completely chaotic Mm. uh, electromagnetic frequencies of every direction, none of them complete in any way, just uh, incoherent, static-like affairs Mm. created by... uh, all the electromagnetic devices we've just invented, the microwaves uh, right. uh, from cell phones, the microwaves from TV stations, the microwaves from police calls, from radios, from all these gadgets. These are now visible through electromagnetic pictures taken of the Earth's surface. Amazing. It's, it's a terrifying situation. And since we know that the, the, uh, the human... Uh, DNA is enormously sensitive to electromagnetic frequencies of its environment, then we'll begin to see some of the reason for the growing dysfunctions Mm. that we find in our societies. Why? Media has spread a, a, a disorder throughout the world on a uniform level. And uh, so we, when, we, when we start looking at the effects of technology, it's not all clear blue skies. Hmm. Well, let's talk about field theory a little bit more. We've been talking about fields, and, and I think it's interesting uh, also that you, you make the, the connection between the relationships of fields, the sun, the earth, individuals, the heart. It, it appears that there's a sort of fractal, self-similar hierarchy, but it's just a matter of scale almost. Uh, and if we go down to smaller scale, I imagine we'll see the same thing inside cells and organelles and atoms and this sort of thing. But all of these fields apparently are all interacting with uh, with one another as well. And, and uh, we have this idea that we are sort of closed systems. You know, our body ends at our skin, sort of. But it turns out that that is also a misconception based on what you're uh, discussing here that these fields literally emanate the the field from the heart emanates many many feet outside of uh, uh, the boundaries of the body itself and again I guess this ties in with all of these other electromagnetic waves and frequencies that we are literally a swim in now on this planet well yeah we use the term field for simply an aggregate or uh, well that's the only word I can think of an aggregate of frequencies that mm-hmm. are similar or resonant with each other. Uh, this is the uh, Dave, the great David Bohm, Einstein's mm, sure. protege, the sure. physicist. And he was one of the first to really come out and explain how this field effect works. Rupert Sheldrake picked up from, from work that had been done at Harvard on field effect uh, involved in, mem- in both memory and genetics, mm-hmm. uh, starting up in the 1920s. And Sheldrake picked up on all this and has expanded on getting a, a remarkable pan from the academic scientific oh, world, gosh. of course. I, I, read, uh, I read an article just a couple of days ago. Uh, it was a response, a letter that Rupert had written to uh, uh, one of his detractors, and it had to do with media skeptics. And, yes. uh, and it was a brilliant piece, and Rupert is brilliant. I've had a uh, conversation with him uh, a number of times o- over email. I haven't interviewed him, although I'd love to, but he's... He's brilliant, and yeah, I'd, l- I'd love it if you continue talking about this a little bit. Yes, in fact, the Scientific American in this last edition just ran a, an editorial on the back page from the editor of Skeptic Magazine, and he 
was smilingly condescending about Rupert and his resonances and how easily we you find the academic uh, world dismissing. Uh, this uh, research has been going on since the 1920s, mm-hmm. but simply it indicates what you call a top-down influence rather than strictly atomic molecular bottoms-up kind of an effect. Mm-hmm. And uh, this has always been a heresy in the, right. in the scientific world. That, of course, is slowly changing without any doubt. Uh, Rupert Sheldrake, certainly one of the one of the truly true pioneers in the in the uh, uh, field of science, and has done some remarkable work and quantifiable research that oh, can yeah. be repeated in laboratories. Right, right. But all this is is uh, dealing with the, the fact that two frequencies, if they are coherent or resonate with each other can reinforce each other and build in strength, whereas two frequencies that are antagonistic toward each other tend to cancel each other out or just create more static. Right, right, right. And the whole issue of field fields of energy means that energy will aggregate according to resonance of its frequencies. Uh, and you end up with something like a field of mathematics. Hmm. In fact, Howard Gardner's Basic intelligences, which he says are inter, are independent, actually, um, are like music, mathematics, spatial intelligence, and so on. Uh, that was in his great theory of, of a new mind offered back in the 70s. Right. A, a revolutionary notion that we don't learn uh, mathematics uh, through our intelligence, that it is an intelligence of its own. <laughs> which we simply learn to tap into, in effect. <laughs> that's not his language. I'm sure he'd be offended. <laughs> but if that's the way it is. Field right. effect right. has been, it's right now, a big subject. Uh, there's an annual meeting of uh, uh, electromagnetic energy science and medicine, electromagnetic energy medicine and so forth, the subtle fields, um, that give rise to our experience. Hmm. David Bohm certainly had exp- had spelled all that out in his deep extension of quantum mechanics. Okay, and he did this back in the from the late fifties on. Amazing, you know, uh, Joe. We haven't we haven't talked much or at all about imagination, um, but you make me think of it here and. Uh, I'd like to ask you a question about it. My my opinion on the imagination sort of falls into this idea of, of fields like you're just talking about. In other words, it's not really my imagination or your imagination. Or it's, it's, it's simply the imagination, and it's somewhere outside of, of, of my physical place in, in sort of non-local, sort of a bell non-locality idea, and that we tap into that. And that's why it's always new and always unpredictable and always improbable. William Blake, the great poet, understood this better than anyone else. Well, back in the, in the 14th, 15th century, the great Sufi and Christian saints were talking about imagination as the divine imagination. Mm-hmm. Imagination is a capacity we share with the divine. And that's the capacity to image an object not present to the sensory system, but to image it up within us in a, a brilliant, clear fashion. And the, the Swedish pediatrics group, group 
claim that a child with imagination would never be violent and couldn't be driven to violence hmm. because they always, when faced with a violent situation, always had access to this divine imagination within that could create an alternative without having to resort to violence. Um, and we speak of the imaginative period of childhood being from about two to three on up through, through adolescence. Uh, and, and the Piaget used the term the child of the dream, mm-hmm. particularly from the period from about four to seven, the child of the dream in which imagination rules supreme. And uh, Steiner recognized that if this were developed, you have the foundation for all the higher intelligences. Mm. And Piaget said the same thing. Maria Montessori said the same thing. Imagination is the most critical faculty we have as human beings and is the way in which we share with the divine (laughs) that capacity to imagine a world and developed in our children, then they have a foundation for moving on into the higher intelligences. Imagination is almost totally destroyed by what Sardello calls virtual realities, Hmm. electronic media. Right, television, etc. The average American infant of six months of age is spending two hours a day in front of a screen. The parent finds that they put their infant or toddler or a young child in front of a screen, they won't move. There are all sorts of reasons for this, having to do with that reptilian mm-hmm. uh, sensory motor survival brain within us. And the, the issue is that it takes the place of all ordinary development. And the fact that the average American child sees 6,000 hours of television before they're five years of age. Uh, means that their whole development uh, has been profoundly compromised by this electronic device. And now, of course, we're adding computers to it and beginning to uh, pass state laws to force children to attend uh, compulsory schooling from age three and four on, all of which is going to compound the the, uh, damage untold amount. So imagination is the whole to it. Okay. And that's what the entire childhood should be be devoted to, developing the imagination. The neuroscientist uh, Frank Wilson wrote an incredible work called Hand and Brain, pointing out that the development of hand and the development of brain went, went hand in hand <laughs> in evolution. And when he discovered Waldorf's education, mm. which Rudolf Steiner had found, right, right. he said, here is the answer. Because they, and they alone, well, I think Montessori does too, recognize that the development of the imagination is everything in the early periods of life up until about age 14. And given that, then you have the foundation to move on into the higher realms of intelligence denied that capacity through our, through virtual realities. And it, you've undercut, you've cut out the foundation on which all higher learning can take place. Amazing. It is, and it's, it's rather terrifying. It is absolutely terrifying. A, and book, a book just came out by two Canadian scholars I had lunch with in Vancouver not long back, 
and it's called Kidnapped. And it has to do with the fact that the corporate takeover of the child mind is literally destroying Mm. intellect as well as intelligence as they have functioned in the human being. And and I gave a copy of it to a medical friend of mine, my family doctor, Mm -hmm. and he said the book scared him to death. (laughs) (laughs) So it's called Kidnapped. I've forgotten the the word, but it's published in Canada. You know, I... I, um I met a woman, I was at a conference in uh, Massachusetts a few weeks ago, and I, I, I met a woman whose name is Juliet Shore, and she's written a book that's called The Commercialization of Children. Yes. And uh, it's along the same lines that you're talking about here, and it's just, uh, again, it's a, uh, a very cogent and frightening look at what's happening, but she really lays it out, and uh, it's perfectly clear to anybody who's, uh, who really wants to understand what's happening now, I think, and I guess that's a good thing because there are people that are learning and, and, and trying to come up with uh, solutions to counteract all of these difficulties that, that our children are being uh, faced with. At the same time, it is a, uh, a tremendous um, mountain that has to be overcome. Uh, yes. Uh, just huge. And, you know, speaking of mountains that have to be overcome, my time is kind of out here. <laughs> all um, right. Well, good. Well, let's, let, let's wrap it up really quickly here and, and sort of bring it back to the beginning. I, I mentioned that I wanted to talk about the heart and technology. And at the end here, maybe we could just address that really quickly. Uh, as these technologies that we're developing now, faster and faster technologies that are more powerful than we could ever have imagined, even... Uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, as we move into these higher realms of technology, uh, I guess my question of the day to you is, how can we move into these realms without uh, these disastrous results? And, I, and, and, I, and I'm, I'm certain that the answer is to move into these places with the heart uh, at the center of them, but uh, maybe you could expand just a little bit on that before we go. Very briefly, in 1995, Richard Kaplan, the physicist, got hold of a lot of foundation money and brought 21 of us from all over the world to a four-day closed symposium uh, on the the um, computerization of education in America, the effects that computers would have on the development of the child brain, the developments it would have on schooling as a as an institution, the effects it would have on the public attitudes toward education, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And out of all that, to make a quick summary, it wasn't that we were Luddites, although we had the world's greatest authority on computers at that time from MIT, Joseph Weizenbaum. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he summed it up for us all. He made a passionate plea for age-appropriate use of technological devices. Age-appropriate use, not to be Luddites and try to break them up. He said, given the appropriate uh, education, the computer could open us up to the stars themselves. Mm. Unknown vistas lie ahead of us, provided that the child learned to think before (laughs) using the computer or any technological device, television or the rest of it. But used too soon, the technology, the virtual reality, took the place of the development of true intelligence mm. and, as a result, compromised the entire system and became our worst enemy. 
So there we had age-appropriate use of it. Now, when we asked Joe Weizenbaum what he thought would be the age-appropriate to, to using a computer in education, he said maybe if they're really good students in graduate school. Oh my gosh. But the old man was absolutely dead serious when he said this. First of all, education must teach children to think. Once they can think, true thinking, the computer opens up everything. Right, then it, then it just becomes a very amazing tool. Yes, yeah. So I think on that, of course, we'll, you know, Mike, we could obviously go for, right, right, right. for days and days. Oh, boy. Fun and games, isn't it? It is. It, it really, you know, it is. It, it's remarkable. Uh, what's happening now, and the fact that we're in the middle of it, uh, I'm 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 both fascinated and frightened, and and loving every minute of it, all at the same time, sort of, uh, as I as I watch all these things happen. And you know, I have a son too. He's now I think he was a year old the last time you and I spoke, but he's he's two now, and uh, two in a couple of months, and and uh, and I'm watching these things happen with him, and it's 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 an absolute thrill, and uh, and a joy, and at the same time very frightening uh, as. Uh, as all of these things that we've been talking about all night uh, or all morning here are, are things that I see, you know, every day on my radar. And I see a trap here and a trap there. And how can we avoid that? And how can I make sure of this? And it's just a, uh, it's a real, um, it's a minefield out there for both children and parents. And I think that it's just, a, like I say, an amazing thing, but at the same time something that, w- that we have to work really hard to, to understand. It's a tremendous challenge. Uh, and, of course, what you're discovering is something that Michael Mendeza, my coworker, and I have been championing for years and years, that on the birth of a child into your life, it gives you the chance to be reborn yourself. <laughs> yep. You find yourself literally uh, recapitulating your whole developmental sequence on a much higher level. It can lead to a parent's real discovery of who they, the parent, uh, might be. And so... The, that is, if we can look at our children to take our cues from them mm. rather than looking at them as only sponges that are must soak up what we're handing out. Well, I, I'm getting off into a whole new angle yep. there. Well, it's been uh, it's been an absolute pleasure, Joe. As always, you're 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 a brilliant man and and uh, and a scholar and a gentleman, and I wish you. Uh, the best. I can't wait to read uh, your next book. If the title remains the same, it will be called The, the Death of Religion and Birth of Spirit. The idea being that spirit can't be born into the world. It's locked into religion. Religion only turns back. Spirit opens to the future. Fantastic. Well, listen, Mike, you are a hmm. mirror of my own mind. We, <laughs> we kind of mirror each other here. It's fun and games. And uh, my best to you in your work. You've been a wonderful model uh, for me and for many other people, and for that, I thank you with my heart, and uh, I look forward to more from you with great anticipation. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, uh, everybody, this is Mike, and you're listening to Radio Orbit. It is about, well, we've got about 14 minutes left before 2 o'clock, and that uh, just finished up the interview that I did a few weeks ago with uh, with Joseph Tilton Pierce, and I hope you enjoyed it uh, as much as I enjoyed uh, doing it because he's an amazing guy, and I hope uh, for people out there who had the ears to hear, you heard what he was saying. 
Okay, uh, let's do one more piece of music here, and then we'll come back and uh, say goodbye. All right, but this is uh, appropriately titled Revealings of the Heart, and it is one more from Robert Cardi. And you can find all this stuff at uh, on the web at www.mikehagan.com. And I click over on the music page, you get to Robert's stuff, and uh, you'll see Joseph Chilton Pierce right on the front page there. Uh, one more time, Revealings of the Heart. And this is Robert Cardi on Radio Orbit.
All right. Hey, uh, that's Robert Cardi, and that song is called Revealings of the Heart. And uh, thanks to Robert for providing the music for tonight's show. We've got a few minutes to finish things up. I, and I just wanted to say that, uh, you know, that's Christmas. It's over. Uh, but that was my Christmas present to you. All right. Joseph Chilton Pierce. Next week, Kent Stedman from CyberspaceOrbit.com, the bard himself from the cave in Seattle. He'll be with me, and we'll be playing some music and talking about good times and uh, fun and games, as Joseph put it. So anyway, okay, I've got one more thing that I want to play on the way out the door here, uh, and it is uh, it was a present that was given to me, actually. And so I got to play it for you guys. This is from my friend Olha. And I thank you so much for it. I love it. Thanks a lot. And everybody else, have a wonderful uh, night and evening or whatever. When you listen to this program, check it out on the web always at uh, radioorbit.com uh, or mikehagan.com. And if you go to the archives page, you can get all this stuff on the web and download it or uh, stream it from the web. Uh, including some of the music and all this other stuff. So anyway, uh, thanks again for listening, and we'll come back to you next week with Kent Stedman. And once again, this is my friend Olha. Thanks a lot. Merry Christmas to everybody, and we'll talk to you next week. Blinka, blinka, yeah, in the sky. Blinka, blinka, little sky. Oh, I wanna watch you. Ah.